2: I think we should always ask ourselves what we don't know in Australia because we don't have robust protections for whistleblowers and for press freedom.
3: I'm in the space where I have to um, accept that there are serious national security threats that our country is facing and we do have an obligation and the government has an obligation to make sure that our agencies are equipped with the appropriate powers to deal with those threats.
0: You're listening to the National Security Podcast the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College.
1: Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Danielle Island Piper, Associate Professor and Academic Director at the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and to that end I acknowledge the traditional custodians, and offer my respects to elders past and present. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Kieran Panda and Dr. Dominic Dallaposa to talk about national security oversight. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So Kieran Panda is a senior lawyer in the Democratic Freedoms Team at the Human Rights Law Centre, where he works on a range of issues relating to human rights and national security. He's also an honorary, honorary lecturer at the ANU College of Law. Dr. Dominique Dallapozza is a Senior Lecturer with the ANU College of Law and has recently come on board to help us teach our national security law subject as well. Dominic's research interests are primarily focused on public law and national security oversight. So we're here today to talk about accountability and national security and why that's important. Of course, there are many different types of accountability, from whistleblowers, parliamentary committees, courts, and the press. Who watches the watchers, if you will? National security is about protecting our existence and our values. There's obviously a need for secrecy on one hand, but not to the extent where we undermine the very thing we are trying to protect. Transparency and accountability in itself can protect national security. So that said, I've got a question for both Kieran and Dom. Can I ask you both to briefly introduce yourselves and your backgrounds? And how did you become interested in the issue of oversight and accountability in the national security context? Um, well, thanks, Danielle. Um, so I became interested
3: in national security law when I was doing my um, PhD research at UNSW. Um, so I was I was at UNSW to do a project on the way in which uh, the laws immediately um, post 9-11, the, the September 11 attacks in the US, were passed by the Australian Parliament. And so that's what I spent time doing in the early 2000s. From there, that that sparked my interest in what Parliament was doing, and from there, I got interested in parliamentary committees, and it's a very short uh, skip and a jump from parliamentary committees to oversight more generally, and
1: so that's how I got interested in what I'm interested in. Wonderful, and we'll come back to the issue of parliamentary committees soon. They play a really important role in the national security context, probably an unestimated one. And what about yourself, Kieran? How did you get interested in these issues?
2: Uh, mainly by accident, uh, I think. All good things. Such, <laughs> such an interesting paradox in this area, which is that you know secrecy is antithetical to a democracy. The idea of sort of government of the people by the people, the people need to know, and yet we accept that, in the sake of national security, we sacrifice some of that transparency and we accept some secrecy in the interests of protecting all of us. But that tension because it cuts across so many of these key democratic principles, I think is so important. And so my background is in whistleblowing and then that sort of led to more interest in secrecy and transparency and intelligence oversight uh, and we've seen, you know, we might come on to in that space, um, you know, recently in the last few years, I've been involved in a number of um, reviews by the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, which is a really uh, important oversight body. And that sort of, again, I went down the rabbit hole um, in participating in that.
1: But it's such an important rabbit hole. <laughs> on the topic of whistleblowers, whistleblowers really sit at that intersection, don't they, of the tension between Uh, secrecy and duty on one hand and the need for transparency and accountability and the public interest in exposing potential official wrongdoing. Can you explain to us who is a whistleblower and and what is the state of whistleblowing protection in Australia right now? Can we improve?
2: Yes, we can improve. Um, Whistleblowers make Australia a better place. They make the world a better place. And Because of that lack of transparency in the national security context, they're particularly important um, mechanism for accountability and transparency in that context. If we think of some of the major international revelations of going back decades, the Pentagon Papers, a national security whistleblower, more recently Edward Snowden, uh, revelations of mass surveillance um, by US security institutions. Um, There's a very good... um, uh, movie out um, recently um, that I'd encourage everyone to, to watch that's so about a, an American national security whistleblower um, in relation to sort of Russia and Trump and so on. But again, we have this tension of, well, at what point is it okay for someone to speak up? And in Australia, our laws and systems aren't properly calibrated. Um, you, you know, whistleblowing takes place at different levels. So, you know, the basic level is you'd expect people to speak up when they see something wrong at work. Any of us, you know, might see something wrong at work tomorrow. Um, The things that I see wrong at my work, um, I mean, I work from home, so (laughs) are not so significant as those, you know, if you work in the intelligence sector, if you work in the national security sector, what you might see at work might be more important. And, you know, we'd normally assume that you'd speak up to your boss, to a director, to to an oversight body, Um, and go through those stages. But I think the sort of the whistleblowing and the concept that sort of are often sort of associated in the press or in the public imagination is what happens when that doesn't work, either because you speak up and things go wrong and you're not heard and maybe you suffer retaliation at work. And we know, you know, not only in the national security context, but across the economy, um, far too many people who speak up about wrongdoing at work suffer consequences. They lose their job, they're bullied, they're demoted and so on. And then what happens when or prosecuted <laughs> or, or prosecuted as we might talk about but what happens when things go really wrong and what happens when the issue isn't dealt with and you need to go public and one of the you know and that's a challenge that balancing that desire for you know, governance and and regulatory can framework with transparency and when a whistleblower can go public uh, to achieve change and to achieve accountability is a fraught issue in any context, but it's particularly fraught in the national security context. And in Australia right now, if you work in the intelligence sector, you can't go public in any circumstance. And that's a problem.
1: Right. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but understand that there is some federal legislation that protects uh, public interest disclosures, but there are carve outs that don't allow people who work in national security agencies to do so. Uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the new uh, Anti-Corruption Commission does create new avenues for uh, people who work in national security to disclose. Is that correct? Is that helping with the balance or is there still more to do?
2: I think there's still more to do. Uh, at the moment, And national security whistleblower can speak up internally. They can speak up to the Inspector General for Intelligence and Security. They can't go beyond that. So an ordinary public servant Uh, or some are working in the private sector in an emergency situation or where they've tried to speak up internally and issues haven't been resolved, there are avenues for them to safely and lawfully blow the whistle to MPs and senators or to the press, uh, or or indeed, in the case of the public sector, to the world at large. In whistleblowing matters that concern intelligence information, uh, that pathway does not exist. Okay, you might say, well, that's a reasonable compromise, but the problem is intelligence information is defined so broadly that it actually represents a significant deficiency in our oversight and accountability mechanism. So the number of staplers at ASIO would be uh, intelligence information that if there was a procurement fraud at ASIO, if if the person buying staplers at ASIO um, was acting corruptly in procuring the staplers from his mate he's a hermate, um, then uh, you couldn't take that public. Now, Mm. yeah, obviously that's a ridiculous example, um, but I think what we haven't really quite nailed at the moment is that calibration. Of course, no one thinks that intelligence officers should be able to go public at the drop of a hat, but in my view, there are certain circumstances where when internal mechanisms don't work, there needs to be an external check and balance, And at the moment, in the national security context, we don't have that. And so we see, for example, the prosecution of Witness K and Bernard Kaliri, Witness K, an intelligence officer who was alleged and ultimately sentenced and convicted in relation to blowing the whistle on Australia's espionage against Timor-Leste in the mid-2000s, and his lawyer, Bernard Kaliri, a a case where I think many people would say Australia spying on another country, a neighbour, a friendly neighbour, for commercial gain... You know, there's a public interest really in significant mm-hmm. questions about the lawfulness and the sort of ethicalness of that conduct the reason that witness k was ultimately convicted and pleaded guilty was because there was no lawful avenue for that person to speak up and again how you calibrate those settings you know there's some complexity there i don't deny that i'm not for an instant saying that spies should be able to get on twitter and say oh bad stuff happening at asio but in Australia, and you know, we compare to some other jurisdictions where they have slightly more sophisticated checks and balances. And, and to come back to that point earlier about the paradox, the reason I think this is so important is because of the importance of trust that sits at the heart of all of this. We sacrifice the transparency um, because we trust our intelligence services, the national security framework, to make us safe. If we lose that trust because they act in the wrong way and then they cover it up, as in the Witness K case, as in some other cases, we lose that trust, we're all worse off as a result. And so uh, Peter Gresta, the journalist, often says national security and transparency are not a binary. They're not in opposition. Actually, they're mutually reinforcing because we are safer when we have transparency and accountability. And we trust that when we do have secrecy, it's being properly used. And whistleblowers are a really important part of that ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I mean, public trust is really important to institutional um, effectiveness and efficiency, so that's a really important point. Before we um, move on to bring Dom in, I wondered if you think, Kieran, the solution uh, lies in, taking your point that it's very complicated, um, but does the solution lie in having a narrower definition of what national security is or what special intelligence operations are, or is it having a legal exception where a matter can be seen to be in the public interest? And would we have courts overseeing what that is?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a range of changes that are needed. One, we definitely need to narrow the uh, definitions. Uh, currently they're too broad and that's having this exclusionary effect to, to give another uh, absurd, uh, not that absurd example, but, you know, f- for example, if an ASIO oh, officer... Oh, securitisation
1: of stationery is an issue, <laughs>
2: Definitely. But yeah, if an ASIO officer tomorrow commits murder... Cold blood. Absolutely no relation to a, a a an operation. Say they speak up internally, nothing's done. Say they speak up to the inspector general, nothing's done. That's the end of the road. And and how can that be right? That and of course we would all think that it would be dealt with appropriately. But we the reason we have these checks and balances in other contexts is we know that sometimes things go wrong. Uh, the Witness J, not to confuse people with too many witnesses, but Witness J case is another example where an ASIA uh, intelligence officer uh, was prosecuted and convicted and sentenced in total secrecy. And the National Security Legislation Monitor did a report and said that should never have happened and it could never happen again. And again, the problem when we have these examples, it undermines trust because it's all well and good for people to say, well, you'd never have a secret trial. That's absurd. That's not. An, we wouldn't do that in Australia. And then we have one. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think we need that reform. We need some of those pathways. Um, We, the Human Rights Law Centre and others, have called for a general fallback public interest offence. So in a case like Witness K, for the law to say, look, even if this was otherwise unlawful, for someone to say it was in the public interest and a judge to be able to determine that. Um, The government, in a recent review of secrecy offences, declined to support that idea, uh, which we're disappointed by and will continue to push for. We've got to get those checks and balances right to get that balance.
1: Thanks, Kieran. And, And speaking of judges and courts... Uh, Dom, of course, you a lot of your research looks into the way um, different parts of our legal system offer accountability and, and important checks and balances. And of course, uh, we're lucky to live in a country where we do have an independent judicial system. And uh, of course, that's enshrined in our constitution. Uh, and so I'm really interested to talk to you about some of the roles um, that the court plays. But before we get there, of course, um, Parliament itself has a lot of other I guess you could almost call them soft mechanisms, including parliamentary committees. Uh, would you like to speak to the role that parliamentary committees play in this? I'm um, sure. And I, I would say first that we can't forget the
3: courts and that the, um, we'll talk about later how the courts can get involved in national security um, issues. It doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, it can sometimes be quite, um, uh, can change quite a bit. But, um, Because of the difficulties of getting judicial oversight in national security and intelligence matters, what we've done in Australia is develop a range of other bodies that um, try and provide some of the accountability and oversight that is really important, as Kieran said, particularly in this um, area of activity where the state is able to do some really intrusive things. Um, So we've got things like um, the... Ombudsman and the National Anti Corruption Commission, which you referred to earlier, but the really big three um, forms of oversight mechanisms that we typically talk about when we're talking about Australian national security are the in, um, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security that Kieran has already mentioned, and that that's the independent executive body that provides what we call operational oversight of the activities of the main uh, national security agencies. We also have the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, which Kieran has also discussed. Um, And that's a body that's the most recent of the three big um, oversight um, entities. And it's an, an independent office that really reviews legislative frameworks once they've been passed and operating for a while to give a sort of overview of how the legislation is working. And then we get to the parliament, the, the role played by parliamentary committees. And as you've said, parliamentary committees over a long period of time have played some really interesting roles in the development of Australia's national security legislative framework. But the the big committee that has has had the most to do with the development of that framework in recent times is the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, um, and it's been in operation in one form or another for about thirty years. But it's really only taken its central role as sort of the linchpin of um, the committee which sees most of the national security legislation that goes through the parliament and reviews it before it's enacted. It's really had that role specifically um, for about the last uh eight, eight to ten years. Um, and so I think the committee's work is really important because they're the at that stage, they're the only body that can look at a legislative framework before it's been passed and they are able to suggest changes and there's a fair bit of research that says they've they've been pretty successful. If a change um, is recommended by the Parliamentary Joint Committee, at least in recent times, most of them have a, have a good chance of being enacted
1: into law. So it's a very influential and powerful committee in that sense. So in a way, to put it simply, the role that that committee plays is in making our laws better. Well, that's what that, that's in that's, theory, in theory <laughs>
3: and at its best, that is that is um, what we'd like to think that it could be. Um, the way that I look at it is, it's better to have a committee than not have a committee. I'd much rather a committee look at these bills before they're enacted. Or sometimes after they're enacted, um, and see what changes can be made to improve them. And I think it's also important that the committee plays a role um, after the fact, in conjunction with the independent monitor, to see how um, the laws can be improved. Because the key thing about the committee is that it's um, staffed—sorry, it's composed of parliamentarians, staffed obviously by our members of the public service. And so they are the ones, they're our legislators, they're doing the job that we've sent them there to do by looking at proposed
1: laws and trying to make them the best that they can be. So on that, being composed by parliamentarians, sometimes it's a criticism in the national security space that there's almost too much bipartisan cooperation and not enough contestation of potentially controversial laws. Do Do you think that plays out in the committee or could you give an example of where the committee's played an important role in making a change to a law? I think that, well, so one of the things
3: that the uh, committee has done, not so recently, but they, they did recommend that powers that were given to ASIO to question and detain. People who were suspected of having information relevant to a terrorism offence. The the detention powers had never actually been used, and it was a combined effort, really, of the Insulin and the Parliamentary Joint Committee, but they did manage to get the the detention power um, repealed. It was replaced by a compulsory questioning um, power warrant, which, again, like Kieran, I'm in the space where I have to um, accept that there are serious national security threats that our country is facing, and we do have an obligation, and the government has an obligation to make sure that our agencies are equipped with the appropriate powers to deal with those threats. But interestingly, um, the parliamentary joint committee was essential in getting the detention powers, which had never been used, repealed. And so that is a good example of how over time, if you have sustained oversight of your legislative frameworks, you can make a judgment from time to time and go, well, we thought we might've needed this in 2003 when we were in, still in the immediate aftermath of the shock of 9-11, fast forward um, some some time, some many years, and we've decided actually we don't, this isn't the best legal solution to the problems and the intelligence problems that we face. And so I'm um, really heartened by the work the parliamentary committees can do in those spaces. Right. Yeah. Law is not
1: going to be fit for purpose forever. No. Right. Uh, so the law gets enacted, the parliamentary committee has some oversight, um, it then goes into operation. Uh, where does the high court come in dom and and are there we've seen you know recently uh, the high court uh, make some really interesting decisions on indefinite detention and citizenship stripping what court what role does the court play in in oversight of national security um so
3: obviously the high court as as you've mentioned in your introduction and our independent judiciary system overall is protected by our, by our constitution which means that ultimately as long as you can get a case before them they get to decide whether the laws that are passed by parliament are constitutional or not and that that basically that they're in charge of of laying down the rules that set the parameters of the playing field to completely mix my metaphors um <laughs> that will allow parliament to enact legislation that's constitutional that's good for all of us and so in um in relation to citizenship uh, cessation specifically um In 2022 and in 2023, there were two cases decided by the High Court where the High Court actually invalidated part of the national security framework that allowed uh, the Minister for Home Affairs to decide that a dual citizen had um, repudiated their allegiance to Australia by engaging in terrorist conduct and so they, they should lose their Australian citizenship. The outcome of the two cases was that the high court said no that's in that in those circumstances that losing your citizenship is a form of punishment and our constitution says that only a court in our system can levy punishment so the rules changed the playing space for parliament the space in which they can make legislation was redefined or defined in a, in a way that we hadn't previously understood by the high court as a result, it's now Parliament's job to make legislation within those, re- those redrawn boundaries and that is what Parliament did in relation to citizenship cessation just at the end of last week. We have had new laws that have just passed the Parliament to redefine who can strip um, a person of their citizenship if they have been deemed to have... Um, engaged in terrorist conduct. Interestingly, the Parliamentary Joint Committee in this instance is currently reviewing that act. So one of the compromises to get the act passed through Parliament very, very quickly was that it would be referred to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security for review, and that review is open for submissions now. So if anyone listening would like to um, make a submission, that's another great virtue of the committee. They take submissions from the public And they are genuinely interested in what people have to say about the laws that affect us all.
0: We'll be right back.
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
3: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user
1: can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point about citizenship participation in in law making. Is that we are able to to make submissions, and they can be a really helpful and effective way of engaging uh, with law making. And of course, um, listening to you, it occurs to me how important. Um, court oversight is of things like punishment when we live in a system where we don't have a, a constitutional charter or a bill of rights that protects things like fair trial rights or due process. The courts are sort of all that stands between an individual and and the power of the state in some ways. So that's um, a really important point. Another really important um, aspect of our national security systems and oversight, of course, uh, which is a bit more informal and and in some ways a little bit uh, more controversial, of course, is the, f- the free press. And so, um, Kieran, this is a different type of oversight, and in some ways it's the touchstone between the people and um, government. So what? why do we need a free press and why does it, this issue come up in the context of national security?
2: Just to segue nicely from Dominic's comments, I want to begin by reference to my favourite high court case, Uh, Oh,
1: we've all got one, (laughs) which
2: um, involved ASIO seeking an injunction to prevent a journalist identifying uh, an intelligence officer. And uh, ASIO did something they shouldn't have done, which was they had uh, officers go into the court building in the High Court in Canberra and ask people who are in the public gallery. Obviously, courts are typically held uh, in open court. You can go in and anyone can watch. And you had ASIO officers in asking people for their names and addresses. And Justice Dean of the High Court, this was in the 1980s, found out about this and hauled the government uh, into the court and said, what on earth were you doing and gave them a telling off. And it's sort of this really important statement of the importance of open justice uh, and the integrity of the court system separate from our intelligence uh, structures. And that attempt to interfere in the court's processes was looked upon very dimly. Um, I'm not actually sure whether the the journalist ultimately published uh, the identity of the ASIO officer, um, but that's my favourite High Court case. Um, <laughs> so uh, press freedom obviously is at the heart of, uh, of, of any democracy uh, linked into these notions of transparency and accountability. But as you say, it's a largely informal role. So many of those stories that I spoke about at the beginning have been broken by important public interest journalism mm-hmm. Um, you know we've seen so many examples in in recent um, months you know the the Ben Robert Smith reporting, which was vindicated by a federal court judgment, although I know that's on appeal at the moment, um, you know perhaps a, a good example of the sort of accountability journalism when other, um, checks and balances had failed.
1: For those who might not be familiar, could you just briefly explain the background of that case?
2: Sure. Uh, allegations of war crimes committed by Australian forces in Afghanistan and there's been a series of reporting, the ABC's Afghan Files reporting, which was sourced by a whistleblower, and uh, the, the Ben Robert Smith-related reporting by Channel 9, um, by Nick McKenzie and, and Chris Masters and others, indications of the sort of accountability journalism clearly in the public interest that um, ensures Australians can say that conduct is is abhorrent, cannot be done in our name and has led to some of the accountability and change we've seen in that space. Um, uh, In Australia, as you mentioned, we don't have robust constitutional or human rights protections for press freedom and free speech. We have a frail implied freedom, the High Court has said, Um, The Constitution has, sort of from the vibe of it, some protection for free speech. Um, That's very limited. We don't have... We have human rights acts in um, ACT, Queensland and Victoria. We don't have a federal human rights charter, although that's something that is being discussed at the moment. And
1: we saw Queensland recently suspend their own human rights act Any in any event.
2: Indeed. And Mm -hmm. what all that means is although we don't have this robust protection for free speech and press freedom, the press nonetheless plays this important role Uh, And we saw that, for example, some of the journalism that led to um, the raids on the ABC, which was in relation to the Afghan files reporting. The raids on Annika Smithhurst was in relation to intelligence. It was um, she had reported for News Corp proposals to expand um, uh, powers for the intelligence service and her her house was raided. Uh, And she went to the high court um, to link all this back together. And the high court said that the warrant to raid her house was invalid and um, i think those cases demonstrated the precariousness of the role of press uh, the press as a, a safeguard um It's led to a number of reviews and inquiries, um, which including from the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, some of the changes are working their way through now. But I think it's a good example of the importance of um, more robust institutional protections, um, because without those, the the role that we all take for granted that the press is there to hold government to account as the fourth estate uh, is often quite a precarious role. And we saw recently more reporting by Nick McKenzie and others in the nine newspapers about um, proposals that the former Home Affairs uh, um, uh, Secretary um, Mike Pizzullo had had to create a scheme similar to in the uh, United Kingdom where intelligence national security agencies could uh, seek to prevent the media from publishing stories. What's been described as a denotist style scheme. And and that led to, you know, some concern. And ultimately uh, Mr. Bazzolo has um, lost his his role in, in light of the politicization of home affairs and some concern that arose in that reporting. But I, I think another example of we should be really wary whenever there are these attempts to you know, already we don't have enough protection for press freedom in Australia, given the important role it plays in our democracy, we should always be wary. Of further encroachment.
1: If, you, if you'll indulge me in um, a devil's advocate moment, how do we ensure, though, that journalists themselves uh, are responsible in reporting on national security related issues and aren't undermining uh, efforts by national security agencies to keep us safe?
2: Uh, that's, good, a, yeah, that's a, a great question. question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think we have to. You know, accept this natural tension, and that sometimes the role of the press is the price we pay for a free society. Uh, I think that um, leaves an incumbent on the media to report in a sensible, fair, and accurate way. I know that the ANU outgoing vice chancellor Brian Schmidt gave an address to the Press Club recently that talked about the importance of of the media stepping up, um, but I, I don't think the answer to to um national security is ever uh, in that context to further undermine the role of the press um, because that's a role that is the sort of the price we pay. Um, you know, I'm often reminded when I appeared before one of these recent inquiries, someone from one of the intelligence services was bemoaning the administrative burden imposed by one of these pieces of legislation. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's the price. <laughs> the administrative burden is the price of democracy and mm. um, press freedom and the role the press play. Um, you know, and I think you can think of recent examples. Less so in Australia, but in in the UK, for example, with the WikiLeaks reporting that the Guardian led on Edward Snowden and so on. And there were real attempts by the US and UK intelligence services to prevent that reporting. And some of that's been recounted at length. I don't think we can say that the world is not a better place. So the world is a better place because we know what was being done. Um, in our name the level of mass surveillance and there's been sort of safeguards and checks and balances brought in in the US, in the UK and elsewhere to try and recalibrate that because of that reporting. Um, We might not know that if if the intelligence services in the UK had been allowed to prevent that reporting. Um, I think we should always ask ourselves what we don't know in Australia because we don't have robust protections for whistleblowers and for press freedom.
1: Right. And of course, ultimately, national security is about protecting the public and the public has a right and, and a stake in what's being done in its name. So there's Obviously, some very important issues of public interest that play out in the national security context, not least because of the broadening definition and understanding of what national security is beyond the traditional sort of bombs and guns space to more non-traditional aspects of national security, such as climate. We've seen, of course, recent examples of the use of terrorism laws uh, against eco-activists and, and so on. So these are uh, issues of genuine public interest and, and public debate. Uh, I guess we've we've all sort of conceded and accepted that national security agencies and national security work requires a long leash, but have all acknowledged that complex balance in ensuring that it doesn't defeat what it is we're trying to protect. I wonder if either of you, starting with you, Dom, have any additional examples or comments you'd like to make about that balance? Um, well, it's perennial, like <laughs> there, and it
3: is not static. So as we were talking about in my earlier example. One of the key things about making sure that we manage that tension as well between national security and rights and freedoms is to continually continually revisit the way in which we have drawn the balances from time to time in legislation. Um, and so an example that's currently, uh, I'm thinking about prompted by the work of a former colleague of ours, Associate Professor Jake Blight, who is, um, now taking on the, has taken on the role of the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, but published this work before he took on the role. Um, he, he was thinking about historically how ASIO was empowered to access our telecommunications data and what's sometimes referred to as metadata. And in a, an article that he recently published in the Alternative Law Review, Law Journal, I beg your pardon, um, he mentioned that the test that was, that ASIO uses to be able to obtain that telecommunications data from communications carriers hasn't changed since 1991. And he makes the point that in 991, we were 20 years away from the iPhone, and the the amount of data that you could and information you could glean about a person from their metadata was very limited. Fast forward to now, and you can tell an awful lot about a person from the um, activity that they do using their phones and using email and other forms of electronic communication, um, without necessarily having to get the content of that legislation. So, um, Associate Professor Blight was, was writing in the wake of a, the Richardson review. And, um, that was a review done into Australia's national, national security intelligence legislative frameworks. And one of the key recommendations from that review was that Australia's law, laws in relation to electronic surveillance really needed a major overhaul. And to the best of my knowledge, that overhaul is, is being undertaken by the Attorney General's department and it's, it's, um, ongoing. But it's a real area where we need to be very alive to how we're going to balance issues of privacy and proportionality that Associate Professor Blight was particularly interested in his, in his article against the need to ensure that our agencies are able to collect the information they need to gather intelligence and keep us safe. So that balance, that balancing process in, in that particular space, electronic surveillance is one that I'm looking at um, pretty
1: closely and following as best I can um, into the future. That's great. Uh, Thanks, Dom. And I think your point about surveillance really illustrates the fact that, you know, they say love is a verb. (laughs) National security law is also a verb. It's live, it's active, and it won't always be fit for purpose. So we we need to keep an eye on it. And uh, technological surveillance is a really good example of that. Kieran, any parting comments?
2: It's a really important time in this space. We're seeing a lot of reform. The government's moving forward at a really frenetic pace in a range of areas. Surveillance, as Dominic mentioned, uh, is an important one that's ongoing, secrecy law reform ongoing. The National Security Monitor just handed down a report recently in relation to national security law as it applies to courts. Uh, That reform, we're seeing whistleblowing reform next year. So there's a lot happening, uh, and I agree with what's been said. It's a constant uh, attempt to get the right, correct calibration. I always think in terms of you know, necessity, are these truly powers, truly necessary, proportionate, and then what are the safeguards, what are the oversight mechanisms? Because I think there's always a real concern that national security agencies take these powers and then they're used in very different contexts, so you know, I participated in an inquiry in relation to the identify and disrupt um, bill, which expands the surveillance powers of our national security and law enforcement agencies um and uh, the the framework there had initially in the bill was set at three years you know in relation to the, you could use these incredible Really unprecedented surveillance powers in relation to potential serious offences, and that was said at three years. And so I had one of my lawyers go through and like look at all of the offences that um, are caught by three years, and there were. And I pulled out all of these offences, like you know, uh, uh, capturing a dolphin you can be in prison for three years. All of these, are, uh, to make the point, and ultimately the committee did recommend some changes to the bill, which then became law, which we welcomed those improvements. But we've got to be really careful because otherwise you see, and in the metadata context, we've seen local councils getting metadata. We've seen the RSVCA getting metadata. It's not, uh, unfortunately, in this space too often, um, these powers are driven by concerns about, you know, terrorism, child sex abuse, serious drug trafficking. Um, But we've always got to be wary that often these powers are used in more mundane contexts and the Australian criminal justice system over centuries inherited from the English has sought to calibrate our liberties and our freedoms with public interest in sort of security and protection And when we start meddling with that, we do so at our own risk and in a context where we don't have a human rights framework embedded at a federal level that would better ensure those principles of proportionality and necessity were baked in from the very beginning. So um, it's an exciting time, a lot of areas for reform. Um, It's an area where we have to be constantly vigilant. And that vigilance is the price we pay to live in a democracy.
1: Yeah, and with great power, of course, comes great responsibility. Uh, Thank you both for your input today. Many of these issues go to the core of who we are as a society, who we are as a people, who we are as a legal system, and so much of what our national security community is trying to protect. Thanks very much for your time, and I look forward to having you again on the podcast. Thanks, Danielle.
2: Pleasure.